Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of The Mental Matchup, a podcast where we shed light on the hardest competition an athlete will face, the matchup against their own mind. I'm Katzen Pollock, and today my co-host Skylar Debray will be interviewing Natalie Marsh about her journey as a collegiate runner. Natalie grew up in Glencoe, Illinois, and attended New Trier High School. She was in the 2017 signing class to run for Carleton College on both the cross-country and track and field teams. She will graduate this spring with a major in religion and a minor in French. While in school, she was a member of the Carleton chapter of the Sunrise Movement and the Carleton Advocacy Network of Duels. She hopes to find a supportive community running team after graduation. We are so grateful to Natalie for sharing her experiences and wisdom with us during this conversation. And it's all coming up on The Mental Matchup. We do have a quick content warning. This episode contains references to disordered eating and anxiety. Hey, Natalie. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Um, I would love for you to start out with just telling us a little bit about who you were growing up, how you initially got into running, if you were into any sports as well, and kind of what it looked like growing up for you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, I think... Growing up, I definitely was one of those kids who was always pretty into running. I, like a lot of runners, I played soccer for a bit also, Mm -hmm. um, but never super competitively. I started running um, with Girls on the Run when I was in third and fourth grade, which was sort of just, um, you know, a way for young girls to like build confidence and, um, sort of like build friendships with other like-minded young girls um but actually I haven't heard of that organization sorry to cut you off is that like a national organization yeah I think it is national I've I've seen that there are um like chapters of it at least in a few different cities that I've lived in um but it's sort of like a mentorship type program like there's usually um like either a couple parents or coaches who lead it. Um, so it's pretty like decentralized and local. I think you can get trained um, to be a girls on the run coach. And then we basically just met after school, like a couple times a week with other third and fourth, fourth grade girls. And then the, um, the goal of it, I think was to run a 5k. And I did that with my mom. So it's sort of this whole like girls and women yeah. running. Um, That's an awesome really, concept. Yeah, I loved it. I think cool. um, it it was definitely sort of the purpose of it was to like help young girls build confidence and self-esteem um, and feel like they could stay engaged in sports, especially during a time where young girls' bodies start to change. Um, but I feel like I definitely always took it really seriously from a young age. <laughs> I was always like that kid on the on the like not serious soccer team too, who is always like going really hard. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I feel that. Oh my God. Um, okay. Awesome. Sorry to cut you off there, but I wanted to hear more about that. Um, all right. Continue. Yeah. Um, so then, so that was sort of, I feel like I, I got into running through that and my family had always been a family of like, exercisers slash runners my mom did track in high school and then was sort of like a lifelong runner um 
and my dad was always a runner too. And my older brother did cross country, even though he didn't really like it. So I was kind of like, oh, I'll just do that too. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think once I got into it in high school, freshman year, I just like wanted to be more and more involved in it because I loved the team. Um, And I think I probably didn't realize at the time, but I think looking back, it was like a really important outlet for just Mm -hmm. all the things that are going on in high school. Um, So really thankful for that in a lot of ways, but also it can be a slippery slope when you get, um, when you get into running so intensely in that way. And then, yeah, it, it also, I think in the same way that like moving from middle school to high school, I was like, Oh, I'll just keep running. I think moving from high school to college, it was a similar thing of like, Oh, I, I'm not going to not run. Like that wouldn't make any Mm -hmm. sense. Um, and luckily I think I ended up with a really great team at Carleton just sort of by chance. Um, I decided to do a D3 program mostly because I wouldn't really be fast enough for D1 anywhere. Um, especially like where I was at, at the end of my running career in high school, I think I've improved a lot since being at Carleton. Um, but also I think I just got really lucky with the team culture here, um, in terms of striking a really good balance between being like whole people and also being athletes who really do love running a lot. Like it's definitely, it's definitely a more intense environment than my high school team um, because there's just a lot more of a sense of like-mindedness, I think, in terms of um, everyone really liking running a lot and enjoying competition. So that's been a really cool thing about being here um and I think too like I sort of said I sort of just thought it was like the next logical step after middle school and high school or whatever to to keep being on a team but also like running and being on a team is like one of the best things ever and it's one of my favorite things ever and so um there's also that piece of it like I really there's something really special about it for me that I wanted to continue being involved in yeah, I I remember in my high school, the track team had such an awesome culture. I think there's something about how hard running is every day to get up and push yourself to the limit that's in an activity that's a little bit monotonous and like takes so much mental strength in a lot of ways. You need to have really strong connections or you build that connection through kind of like that communal suffering almost. Um, yeah (laughs) that's at least how I've always understood it um and so much respect for you and your team like I running and swimming are the two things that I could never do at a collegiate level especially um there are more things but those two especially (laughs) just make me like just cringe and yeah um it's so interesting. I definitely relate to how you said, like, it just felt like the most natural step to continue. You're like, oh, I can't imagine not running. You know, that's definitely how I felt with soccer, too. Um, have you started to envision what your life will look like post-college? I know there are some awesome running organizations. Like, do you plan to kind of keep it in your life that way? Or are you looking forward to taking a break from running? What does that look like for you right now? Yeah, it is a crazy thought, especially with all the other considerations of what it's going to be like to move into post-college life. Um, I was briefly considering using a couple years of eligibility that I have from both from COVID and then from going abroad um, 
in grad school, but I think based on how things are shaking out, that's probably not going to happen. Um, and I do think it's probably for the best because my body feels a little bit like she needs a break. Um, yeah. And I think running is always going to be part of my life. And I don't really ever see myself taking like a prolonged break from running unless I'm forced to through injury again, um, which I'm sure, you know, will happen. But I think it'll be interesting to sort of like play around with what that can look like when I'm not in the environment of like training to be on a team and to be doing competitions. I think there will be a lot more flexibility in terms of what my relationship to running might look like. So I definitely, it's a goal of mine to run a marathon, you know, like all college runners, you gotta gotta do that. (laughs) And I, I also, in my time being injured this past year during COVID, I really got fixated on the idea of doing an Ironman. Um, and I think now that yeah. I'm out injury, it still feels like it would be a really cool thing to do. But so much time and money needs to go into that. And I don't know yeah. if I'll ever have those things. So yeah. we'll see. Yeah. Um, wow. Yeah. Ironman is just a whole nother level. Um, I would love to rewind a little bit and just for context, um, would love to hear about what distance you run um, to give people context. Yeah. Yes. So cross country is all the same for everyone. Um, in high school, that was mostly three miles and five Ks. And in college, it's six Ks. Um, and then for track, I'm much more of a mid distance runner, um, which is kind of interesting, like bridging the difference between cross country and track. So in track, I don't run anything longer than a 1500, which is like a hundred meters shorter than a mile. And, um, my main event is the 800, which is a half mile. And also I do a good amount of the four by 400. So pretty like quick stuff, especially compared to cross country. That's so different. Um, do you find yourself preparing very differently for each of those seasons? Like, are you in the weight room a lot more working on explosiveness when you head out to track season? Totally. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think like mentally they're definitely different games. I've always loved track a little bit more, I think in terms of the races, because there's just something so like, so satisfying, so exhilarating about an 800. Um, just like so much intensity packed into such a short amount of time. (laughs) But yeah, in terms of training, I think definitely like more, um, more heavy lifting and also just like very different workouts. Like we're not doing, we're not working out as much for just like volume of mileage. It's more about like quality of workout. So we'll do a workout that has like 800 pace mixed into it, but then ultimately you're not doing like, a ton of mileage whereas people who are doing like the 10k are going to be running still a similar amount of miles um in track as they would in cross country gotcha very cool um i'd love to dive as this is a mental health podcast i'd love to dive a little bit more into what you see as the mental differences between your cross country races and your track races like what's going through your head is it a difference like in lead up to it during the race itself, like what are the differences that you see there? 
Yeah. Oh, that's a really cool question. I think um, there are definitely differences, especially when you're talking about the difference between mid-distance and distance. I think like for distance runners, I mean, I've never run anything longer than a 1500 in college, so I guess I don't fully know, but it seems like there's a little bit more of a similarity in terms of preparation mentally um, between cross country and track for those runners. I think um, the main thing for me, especially when it comes to an 800 in track is like, especially when you're well trained and it's later in the season and you feel like you have some races under your belt and know what you're doing. It just feels like it flows a lot more in the sense that you're not thinking in terms of strategy really during the race. Hmm. Um, I think for things longer than an 800, it's a bit different, but like an 800 just happens and you sort of um, like, you definitely learn by doing the first one's not going to be great. Um, But I think I just sort of like developed a sense of the rhythm of the race in my body more than in my head. Whereas I think with a 6k and cross country, it's like, you go out the first kilometer and you have to make an active, active effort to sort of hang back. And then the second kilometer, mm-hmm. maybe you're pushing it a little third kilometer, maybe a little bit. And then like, we usually say after the third kilometer, that's when you like really start pushing. Um, and so there's a lot more of like an active mental effort there of like, okay, I just passed the three K mark, like time to go. And now I'm going to pick up my turnover. Whereas like, I think in an 800, it's a lot more like, it just sort of happens and then the race is over and you're like, what was that? (laughs) (laughs) You're just going the whole time. Yeah. As fast as you can. The 800 is brutal. In high school, I would run the 400 and my coach tried to get me to run the 800. I was like, absolutely not. (laughs) I can't, I can't do that for you. I'm sorry. (laughs) Um, I just read, um, Alexi Pappas book, Bravey. Have you, do you know her? Have you read that? I haven't read any of it, although I've seen like excerpts and stuff because I feel like it's all over social media. She's really cool. Um, I definitely want to read that at some point, but. Yeah, I would highly recommend it for all, like you and all athletes. Like it was, it was an amazing book. Um, Especially the chapter that she wrote on depression. Like I kid you not, I was crying every single page just because it resonated so deeply. And, um, it's something is, it's so therapeutic to like have someone spell out and articulate so well, like something that you had been through or something similar that you'd gone through just to like remind yourself that you weren't alone, that it was real. It just like helped me process in a really healthy way. Um, so anyways, would highly recommend that. Um, but I was, I came to mind because when I think of 800, I think of just like the amount of pain that you're in and then cross country, even more significant. I think you're in that same amount of pain for a longer amount of time. And Alexi talks about her relationship to pain in really interesting ways. And I'd love to hear a little bit about how you deal with mid race pain, mid training pain and like what your relationship to that is. Hmm. Yeah. I love that question. I think it's changed a lot um, throughout the time that I've been running competitively. Um, I think definitely like in high school and maybe when I was younger, um, I was definitely that type of teenage girl who was really good at doing what she was told and like was rewarded 
um, for being quote unquote disciplined, you know, um, like I, I like just did a lot of school and like a lot of things outside of school and like the running thing. Um, so it was kind of always like go, go, go. And pain is good because it means you're working hard, like suffering mm-hmm. is good because it means you're trying your hardest. Yeah. Um, and I think I definitely took that with me to college, but it like stopped working because after a while you just kind of burn out. Um, but it's interesting because like you're saying, like pain is such an integral part of the sport. And in many ways, like I imagine she sort of goes this direction in Bravey. Like it is a kind of a really special place when you get to that point in like a workout or a race where you're just like, so you're just like right up against pain. Um, And there's something really powerful about being in that place and sort of like breaking through it sometimes. I think you just, you learn a lot about yourself in that place. Mm -hmm. Um, But on the flip side of that, I think like when taken to an extreme, it can be a little bit dangerous um, because on the one hand you can learn a lot about yourself, but on the other hand, you can sort of like use it as a a mechanism for designating yourself worth you know like oh if I'm not Mm -hmm. if I'm not suffering if I'm not like working hard all the time um then I'm not good enough or like also you know if I'm in pain during a workout but it's like I'm not running the times I want you know um Mm -hmm. then I'm also not good enough so I think it gets fraught really easily but I also think it's I love talking about that sort of thing because I think it is a really um, can be like a really beautiful part of running. And also I think athletics in general, just like getting, getting to know that part of yourself really intimately. Mm -hmm. No, I I couldn't agree more with all of that. Like it's definitely nuanced, but I think the, the place where I see the most benefit is like, yeah, getting to the point where you're incredibly uncomfortable and learning how to cope with that and let it be and realizing that like you can get through it and you're fine. And um, I think one of my friends recently said something like, when you work out, that's pain that you're choosing to put yourself through versus a lot of times in life, painful situations arise that you don't get to choose. So like there's something beautiful about being like, I am putting myself in this situation and I'm learning how to get through it and it's by choice and it's going to help me get through painful external circumstances that maybe I don't have any freedom to like choose in the future. If that makes sense. But yeah, it's, I, I think it's fascinating to think about too. Um, but anyways, I'd love to get to talking about your individual college experience. You kind of alluded to it when you were talking about your relationship to pain. But um, yeah, start me off with freshman year and um, how that transition from high school went. And we'll kind of go from there. Yeah. So I think initially the transition from high school is really rough because just because of the ramp up in training. Um, and I was like, like I sort of said before, I was trying to bring the same kind of strategies I used in high school of like working all the time, not really caring for myself very much. Tried to bring that to freshman year of college and like fall cross country season. I just like, I was sick for like 
over half the time um, that I was at school in the fall, basically because I wasn't sleeping enough and I was training harder. So I think there was definitely an adjustment to be made there. Um, And people often say like with a ramp up in training, especially if there's a big ramp up in the mileage that you're used to, um, like you're not going to see the benefits of it right away usually. So then um, I think after sort of adjusting freshman fall, um, freshman year track, both indoor and outdoor, I felt like I was pretty much constantly improving, which was really exciting. Um, and that continued into uh, sophomore year cross country season, though I always felt more at home with track races than cross country races. Um, so I think freshman year track, I was seeing like some decent improvement on my high school times. And then cross country was a fairly good season sophomore year. And then sophomore year track, I ran like way faster times than I ever thought I would because I was able to have that like continuous block of pretty high intensity training from the summer before freshman year up till, um, sophomore year track. And I think especially if you're doing cross country and track, that training cycle is really important, um, in terms of getting like the long distance training in, in the fall. And then if you're more of a mid distance runner, like ramping up the speed stuff in the winter and spring, and then building your mileage back up over the summer and like getting in two years of that, I think just like really worked well for my body. Um, and then junior fall, I went abroad and got injured and then COVID hit. And so things sort of (laughs) spiraled downward from there. But I think like during that time, freshman and sophomore year, um, as I got faster, I kind of got consistently unhappier. And that wasn't necessarily due to getting faster. Although I think being under actual physical stress from training really hard, definitely just made it harder to um, like not feel mentally and emotionally stressed for me personally. Um, But also I think just like the increasing pressure of being at college and away from home and realizing um, there were some things that I had to deal with in terms of anxiety um, that I didn't necessarily have to deal with in high school just because I was much more supported um, in terms of like living at home, you know, having family around and maybe also the issues that I was having weren't as um, ramped up during that time as they got, I think just by virtue of like being in a pretty intense environment of like, okay, pretty much the only things you do are like train hard, do your homework, like work really hard at school eat, sleep, and that's it. Um, Repeat. Yeah. For a years straight. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and have a smile on your face. So. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that's, it's such an interesting um, kind of experience to be getting better at your sport and then getting unhappier internally. Um And I think it's really important to remind people that that is possible. You know, like I think a lot of people like coaches, for instance, I think is a prime example, like assume that if their athletes are performing well, it means that they're doing well mentally. 
And that just, it's not always the case. Um, I experienced kind of the same thing. My junior year, I came back from my ACL tear, like sophomore year, I tore my ACL, was recovering and was pretty fine mentally. Junior year, came back, started every game, and I was more depressed than I'd ever been in my life um, at that point. So yeah, it's, it's fascinating how just our chemical makeup can make it so that our external circumstances do not reflect what's going on inside of our own brain. Um, so you talked a little bit about anxiety. Um, what did that look like for you both in your sport and outside of your sport? Yeah, I think for a while, the main theme of that, um, was that it was unchecked and unidentified. Um, Mm -hmm. because I think, I mean, it's weird to talk about now because I feel like I've totally shifted and it's been a couple of years, but I think freshman and sophomore year, I was really scared of identifying as someone who like had, you know, like had Mm -hmm. anxiety or had depression, which I I feel you on that. It's own set of problems. Like those labels don't feel good to everyone and, and they don't always serve a purpose. Um, but I think for me, there was something really important eventually about being like, okay, I do have this problem. Um, who knows where it came from, if it's like, you know, something innate or is a factor of how I was raised. Like it's probably both. It is both. Um, but like acknowledging that what I was suffering from and what I was dealing with was real, um, was I think really important and eventually like allowed me to start going to therapy. And then like several years later allowed me to start taking medication, which has been really helpful. Um, and so I think like before I was able to articulate that to myself, I was just like suffering in silence, like super internally, like totally like wrapped up inside me, like wouldn't admit it to anyone, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that was something really insidious about dealing with anxiety really for the first time in a serious way, while also competing and training pretty intensely um, and doing well, because everyone was telling me, oh, you're doing so well, like you're so fast, you're, you're getting so much faster. And I felt like all I could do was say, oh, yeah. Like, it's great. I love being fast. <laughs> um, and I think I didn't even really have the language at that point either to, to articulate what exactly I was feeling or how exactly I was suffering. Mm-hmm. And I think I I can relate to that too. Like, I think that I was dealing with some anxiety my sophomore and junior years and at that point I was like, oh, I'm just, I'm just nervous or like I didn't eat right yesterday. And so I'm feeling a little bit lightheaded. Um, so like, I think I would have benefited a lot from being able to identify anxiety earlier. So I'd love for you to, could you talk a little bit about like, um, what 
your anxiety looked like and felt like, um, just so maybe we can help other listeners identify for themselves, like if they have similar things that they're experiencing. Yeah, totally. I think I didn't fully realize um, all of the physical effects of anxiety until I started getting treatment for it. I think the story I told myself at least was that it was mostly mental, which like that's a huge part of it. Um, but in terms of the physical side of things that I like started to notice once I started to get treatment for it, um, especially in relation to running, like I'd come to practice um, and just like, like you were saying, I'd feel like sort of lightheaded. I'd get out of breath really quickly. I, there were a couple workouts that I just like had to stop midway because I couldn't breathe. Um, my anxiety definitely affected my breathing a ton. And I've always been one of those runners who has like kind of a weird breathing pattern. Um, and so if I came to practice anxious, I just like, I would like feel it at the start of a workout and be like this, Mm -hmm. right. And eventually I sort of learned techniques for calming myself down before a workout or a race so that my breathing wouldn't get all messed up. But breathing was a big one for me. Um, I also know it's somewhat common to like, if you have anxiety and acid reflux, those two can sort of like feed off of each other and create more breathing problems because the acid like restricts your airway and then anxiety also has that same effect. Um, Mm -hmm. I struggled with like that sort of feedback loop. Um, And apart from practice, I think just like feeling sort of like over caffeinated all the time and like a little bit jittery in a bad way. And then accompanying that was just like the constant, I used to always refer to it as like a hamster wheel in my brain. Um, Cause I think especially being in the environment of like always doing schoolwork and then like having practice and then meets like every weekend, there was just like always the next thing to be thinking about. And like, how am I going to stay on this wheel? Like, how am I going to keep moving and not fall off of it? Um, So that, for me, that's, like, sort of what the internal experience of it was like, I would say. Awesome. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, Yeah, I I think that a lot of people would benefit from having a better understanding of, like, what anxiety looks like just because I think there are a lot of people who share that experience of suffering – because of anxiety and realizing years down the line that that's what was going on and being like, Oh wow. would have been really helpful to maybe get some treatment or even just like, not even treatment, just like understand for myself what was happening. Um, like in high school soccer, my senior year, I remember in fourth period, like every week I would get super nauseous and go to the nurse's office. Cause I would like be about to throw up. And I'm like, what, like, what is it about fourth period physics class like, this is so strange. And then, and then like, I realized late in the season, I was like, oh, it's always on game days for high school. And then I would, I would like dry heave during some of the games. It was awful. And then I finally put it together. I was like, wow, like something about that time of the day is like when your nerves build up enough to get that like physical response in your body. Um, so yeah, it would have been really helpful. I, at one point I was like, oh, I think I'm drinking too much water. Like that's, that's why I'm nauseous. And then I was like, okay, no, that, that's not it, Skylar, but good, good thought. Um, anyways, um, 
Anxiety is real, people. We'll be right back with Natalie. We'd like to take a moment to talk about Morgan's Message, without whom this podcast would not be possible. Morgan's Message is a nonprofit founded in 2020 to honor Morgan Rogers, who was a beloved daughter, sister, and fiercely loyal friend. Not only was she a talented athlete, she was a bright student and artist that had a deep passion for all genres of music. Through amplifying stories, resources, and expertise to confront student-athlete mental health, we are building a community by and for athletes and providing a platform for advocacy. Morgan's message strives to eliminate the stigma surrounding mental health within the student-athlete community and equalize the treatment of physical and mental health in athletics. Morgan's message aims to expand the dialogue on mental health by normalizing conversations, empowering those who suffer in silence, and supporting those who feel alone. To help us take a shot at mental health, to support our mission, and to find out more, head to morgansmessage.org and follow along on Instagram at morgansmessage. I would love to move on to your junior year. Like you said, it was a transition in a lot of different ways. Um, so yeah, tell me a bit about how junior has been and I guess we can go up until senior year and how you're doing now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I went abroad my junior fall to Senegal. Um, and I think in terms of like the runner side of me, that was a tough decision because there were some people on my team who made the active choice not to go abroad their junior year, especially their junior fall, because they didn't want to miss a cross country season. Um, And I was at a point where I was like, it's much more worth it for me to have this experience than to like get in this season of training. And I still feel that way. Although while I was there, even it was really easy to look back and be like, Oh my gosh, would have been great if I could have this season of training in, Um, especially because while I was there, I twisted my ankle really badly and like, it didn't really heal properly the whole time I was there. Cause I was sort of doing that thing where I knew that I shouldn't be pushing it. But since running was one of my coping mechanisms for, um, all of the different things I was experiencing while I was there, I I, like really tried to get back into running hard (laughs) while I was there. Um, and so my ankle thing just like wasn't really healing quite right. And then by the time I got back to winter track um, of junior year, my ankle was like sort of on the mend, but I think wasn't quite right still. And basically like pounding a lot of workouts on the indoor track, which like is pretty notorious for injuring people just since it's smaller and there are more turns. Um, I think the combination of like, still recovering from the ankle thing and like probably wearing the wrong shoes and probably training a little too hard. I got a stress reaction at the end of that season and was in denial about it for a while. COVID was like just starting to happen. So we didn't know if we were going to have an outdoor season yet for a while when I was like, when I probably had already gotten the stress reaction. Um, I, still thought we were going to have an outdoor season because it was that weird time where everyone was like, oh, this will be like a three-week thing. Um, (laughs) Which is so crazy to think about now. So I sort of kept training on it for a bit too long. And then even once I made the decision to like stop running for a bit, I was biking super hard. And I think biking actually made it worse. Um, 
which people don't often say about running injuries, but it's true. Biking can make them worse. Mm -hmm. And so then I finally started going to physical therapy for it, like at the beginning of COVID summer. So summer of last year. Um, And it was just a really slow healing process. I didn't, um, I didn't run this past fall cross country. There wasn't a season, but my team did some time trials and stuff, but I just like wasn't practicing with the team at all. I couldn't run very much at all. And then in the winter, I was just sort of getting back into running. And now in the spring, um, I'm finally actually able to practice with the team and compete, but I still, like my shin still hurts often, which is crazy. Um, Mostly from scar tissue, but like you can really mess your body up with running (laughs) or with Mm -hmm. any sport like you can really especially with a stress injury um it can the effects of it can last for a long time but all throughout that time of like getting injured and then sort of like drifting away from the team and from competition a little bit because of that I think was a really difficult experience to say the least it was the first time I'd been injured for a really long stretch of time And I also was in the dark very often because I didn't know why my injury wasn't healing. Like most people tell you that a stress reaction takes about eight weeks to heal and then you can start running again. And that was just not at all the case for me. I was out for over a year. So I think that was um, one of the really horrible parts of being injured, just feeling like I was in the dark and also with COVID and everything. And um, I think all of that contributed to just like ramping up some disordered eating patterns that I'd already been dealing with just sort of in an unidentified kind of way. Um, But injury made them a lot worse, which is I think an experience of other athletes when you're sort of like distanced from your sport. Um, There's often this like weird loop of justification that goes on of like, Oh, I, I'll eat this much because I'm working out hard, but if I'm not working out hard or competing, like why would I eat that much? And so, yeah, that can be a really dangerous thing. And I think I definitely struggled with that during that time I was injured. Yeah, I do. I do think a ton of athletes um, fall into that. And like you said, it's, it's unfortunately easy to rationalize those behaviors when you are injured. Um, I definitely saw some of my teammates fall into that as well. Um, but I, I was really excited to have you on the podcast because I do think that disordered eating is such a common issue for athletes and it's, it's really not talked about enough. Um, so like, I know that you've, gotten some therapy for it and I would love if you don't mind sharing maybe some things that have been really helpful for you in the process of you know um achieving a healthier relationship to eating um I think for starters I would love to hear about like what what a healthy relationship to eating looks like for you and then how it shifted and then like how you've been able to kind of regain it yeah Great questions. I think um, I think a healthy relationship to eating and to food is like very simply like eating when you're hungry and stopping when you're full, um, and like recognizing that 
food is fuel, but food is also for pleasure. Um, and that food isn't dangerous. And, um, I think going to therapy was really helpful for me. I'm definitely someone who likes to sort of like talk things out and like start conversations with other people when I'm going through something. I think it's really helpful for me to like put that into words and be pretty like open and vulnerable, vulnerable about it. Um, and so I think that was a helpful thing about seeking treatment. I was both, I still am going to therapy and seeing a nutritionist. And then they also like, depending on the type of program that you're in, you'll probably, especially if you're outpatient, if you're inpatient, obviously it would be more intensive, but if you're outpatient, you'll probably like go in person every once in a while, um, to like have them do some physical checkups on you because, even if you haven't dropped weight with an eating disorder, there are a lot of um, physical effects that can actually be really dangerous, um, even if you haven't dropped weight. Um, and that was something I didn't necessarily know before going to get treatment. But I think the therapy and nutritionist side of things have been really helpful for me and just, just in terms of um, sort of like developing language to talk about the experience of disordered eating. Um, especially for me, in my case, I didn't drop a ton of weight, um, which I think is another really under talked about aspect of eating mm -hmm. disorders, especially when it comes to athletes, especially when it comes to female athletes and female runners. I think there's an assumption that you know if someone has an eating disorder only if they look like they have an eating disorder. Um, and it's highly possible that some people in the running community who look like they have eating disorders actually don't. And some people who don't, you know, fit that prototype actually do have a real problem. Um, and that's, that's another thing. I think like you're saying, there's a lot of work to be done in terms of talking about eating disorders more openly in the athlete community. And I totally agree with that. And I think another part of that is like, talking about the full range of eating disorders more openly and understanding that like everyone's experience with it is going to look different. Everyone's um, everyone has a different body type. And so like different body types are going to interact with disordered eating behavior in different ways. And I think um, it's really important to like validate all of that and recognize that everyone who's struggling with disordered eating deserves to get help for that um mm -hmm. I think yeah that's been a super important thing for me in the past year that's so well said I would love because I I do think that myself included the majority of people the first thing that they think of when they think of disordered eating is weight loss um so I'd love for you to talk a little bit about what like the other impacts um, it can have on your body and like how, yeah, how it can manifest in, in other ways other than weight loss. Yes. So one of the sort of like buzzwords in the running community and also I think in other um, female athletic community, communities is the female athlete triad, which is basically um, sort of like if you visualize a triangle of these three conditions, um, disordered eating, osteoporosis and amenorrhea which is a loss of your period those three mm -hmm. 
which what can you define osteoporosis as well yes, yes. Right? osteoporosis is um a loss in bone density okay yeah. thank you so disordered eating osteoporosis and amenorrhea those three when combined with um like usually sort of like an endurance type sport so like distance running um swimming i think like what are some other ones um climbing um really like it can affect people in so many different sports but those are the ones where it's often flagged um which i think is like a whole another issue you know um so those basically the female athlete triad um suggests that like if you have any one of those conditions and you're a female like say a female long distance runner you're really likely to to develop another one if not both of them and then they all kind of feed on each other once you're like stuck in that loop it's recently been updated um i think like the most current term is no longer female athlete triad it's red s which stands for um what does it stand for again relative energy deficiency in sport i think so um that's sort of like a more encompassing term which suggests that you don't have to have all three or even two to feel the negative effects of those three things of disordered eating osteoporosis and amenorrhea especially if you're an athlete um and the the idea there like physiologically i I'm not a scientist, but um, the relative energy deficiency thing is, um, as the as the term implies, like you don't necessarily have to drop weight to feel the negative effects of it. So if you're um, working out a lot and like not getting quite enough fuel, you might lose your period, which happened to me, even though I didn't drop weight. Um, and that's a sign. That's your body telling you like, you're not giving me enough fuel for me to keep doing this thing. Like I'm not going to have a baby when you're doing this, like this won't work. Um, so then it stops doing that. And like, there are a lot of other ways your body sort of like slows down and, and, um, tries to like hold on to every little bit of energy if you're restricting. Um, and so, yeah, so I think you can feel the negative effects of that. And then when you lose your period, you know, that like hormonal changes can really mess with your energy as well. Um, so I think, yeah, and then those three can really feed on each other because if you lose your period, you're um, much more likely to develop the osteoporosis things, um, things that go with osteoporosis, also just like lower bone density um, because estrogen is protective of bone health. And then disordered eating, like obviously factoring into all of that as a potential cause of either of those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one one question that came to mind for me is that, as we've said, disordered eating is so common for athletes, both male and female, um, and it's really not talked about. Um, and one question I wanted to ask you is, what do you think are some barriers or like pressures as to why people don't talk about it? Yeah, one thing I've been thinking about recently. Um, which was not true in my experience, but I think is like one of the barriers to talking about it more is that often, especially 
people who are engaging in disordered eating behavior who do notice a drop in weight because of it. Um, like, especially in running, I've also heard that this is the case in climbing. Like, sometimes you do get faster or, like, your import, your performance may improve <laughs> um, in, like, the super, super short term. And that's, like, right. I think that's a really dangerous thing because that's sort of, like, a reward, you know? Like, that tells you, okay, what I'm doing here is working. And then usually what happens after is that, you know, like you get a stress fracture or two or three or four. Um, You can't sustain it. Yeah. You sort of burn out. And also like, I think the experience of a lot of people in that place is that like they're depressed all the time. Like if you're not giving your body enough fuel, you feel horrible. Um, And then it sort of feeds on itself because like it maybe feels worth it in those few moments where you're performing really well. Um, And then you're also getting the feedback from people around you that like, oh, you're doing great. You look great. You're so healthy. And so I think that is one of the really, um, one of the big barriers, I think, to talking about it more. But then on top of that, like, I think for male athletes, like just the fact of being vulnerable and like admitting to that kind of vulnerability, um, that feels like a really big barrier in that realm of things. And that, I mean, that's a big barrier for female athletes as well just like it's a very it's a very taboo subject on its own even outside of the athlete community and then when you add to that that um there's sort of like this implicit rewarding of it going on either like of if it actually sort of like improves your performance for a very short amount of time or just like I think certain sports teams have a culture of like skinnier is better And so sometimes like coaches are rewarding that behavior or just like other athletes on the team. And the more I look around and the more I sort of think about it, like I think my team has a pretty good culture when it comes to healthy habits around eating. Um, But even with that in mind, like the amount of people on my team who have just like a disordered relationship with food is enormous like it's it's the majority and that I think that like it makes you wonder how did we get to this point but it also just makes the task of like taking it apart really complex because like even though I would say I'm on a team that has a pretty good culture around eating and relationships to food like if the majority of people still have a disordered relationship with eating and like, I'm on a D3 team, you know, like I think that's even ramped up on D1 teams sometimes when just like the environment around training is much more intense. Like that's just, there's a lot of work to be done there. It's it's wild to think about. Um, and really scary, honestly. Um, is there anything in your mind that you're like, this is one change in the athletic world that needs to happen that would help lessen the amount of disordered eating in sports and also outside of sports? Yeah, I think that's such a hard question. Um, it is, sorry. With, <laughs> hard hitting here. <laughs> Solve it all for us right now. <laughs> um, I think especially just with like the pervasiveness side of it, even when like – 
my team, you know, has had a few candid conversations about relationships to food. And like, we start every season with a captain's talk. And that's always part of it. Um, And I think they always do a really good job of establishing that, like, it's a very sensitive issue. Um, If we're all eating together, you know, like, don't make comments on people's food, that sort of thing. Um, And I think, based on my experience talking with friends from high school who run at other schools now in college, like I think my team is doing a lot better on that level than some teams. So I think like, I think that's a starting point, like having open, safe conversations about it. Um, I think potentially like also having, if there are the means having people sort of like facilitate those conversations who are actually trained, um, in eating disorders because there can be like a lot of triggers for people who are already dealing with disordered eating behavior like depending on how that conversation is framed it could actually sort of like trigger people into engaging in more disordered behavior but I think definitely like having really open conversations about it is an important starting point I think beyond that it's like it really needs to happen you know when we're all like five years old and our like relationship to like food and exercise is sort of initially established. Mm-hmm. So it's really like a cultural shift also, I think. Yeah. Um, I agree. That's definitely the place that we need to start with just mental health as a whole. Um, all right. And unfortunately I know, I know you need to run. So I'll just hit you with one closing question. Um and we'll make it if, you know, you just want to say one thing to our audience, one piece of advice or, um, yeah, not to combine, not to combine two questions in one. Usually we ask, like, if you could tell yourself one thing, like if you could go back mm-hmm. to yourself in one dark moment. So mm-hmm. take it whatever direction you want to. Um, but yeah, okay. just like one thing that you'd tell yourself in a dark place in the past or tell the audience. Cool. Yeah, I'm I'm good on time. So, um, okay. yeah, I think um, I mean this is cheesy, <laughs> but <laughs> I think like I would tell myself in the early days of trying to figure out um, if I needed to seek out help for what I was experiencing like at first in terms of anxiety and depression and then in terms of feeling like I needed help with the eating disorder um and I wouldn't have gotten help with the eating disorder if I hadn't initially sought out help for anxiety and depression because it was through my then therapist that I got connected to the place where I'm now being treated um I think like I just would have told myself like yes you deserve to get help like just because you're experience might not be like what you think of as the prototypical experience of someone in your situation right now, or just because you don't like check all the boxes, like you do deserve help. And just because you think something feels off and you think something is wrong, like that in itself is enough. Um, Talking to someone is always good. (laughs) And so Mm -hmm. I think, I think that's, that's something that I would tell myself. And honestly, that I'll probably have to continue to tell myself throughout my life, you know, like it it can be really hard when you're in that moment of 
deep suffering and feeling really alone, especially when everyone on the outside is like, oh, you're doing great. Um, to, to like find the courage, honestly, to be like, oh, actually things aren't okay. I need some sort of help. Um, and that's also a really scary path to, to like embark on because you don't really know if the help that you're going to seek out is going to be what you thought it would be, or is going to, you know, work, whatever that means. Um, so yeah, I think Mm -hmm. there's something very powerful about seeking help, even though it's kind of maybe overstated. No, I think I just realized I was just snapping because I could not agree more with what you said. And I was like, the audience probably is like, what is that noise? (laughs) Um, but yeah, no snaps, all that. I think that's honestly probably what my answer would be too, is like, you are allowed, like it, whatever you're feeling is valid and nothing is too small to go talk out and get help for. Um, yeah. So thank you for sharing that. Um, and thank you for sharing everything that you have today. I'm really blown away by like how, how open you are with everything you've gone through and, um, yeah, it's been amazing to have you on and have this conversation with you. So thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me and for all of your thoughtful questions. It can be really therapeutic, I feel like, to, to talk it all through and also um, really cool to talk it through with someone who's had a similar experience. So. Yeah, for sure. Alrighty, well, Natalie, all the best. Um, thank you again. And hopefully we'll talk soon. All right. I want to take another moment to thank Natalie for her courage and vulnerability in sharing her story. You can catch us next week on The Mental Matchup.